Hello, I'm Persephone Pearl. I'm the director at Onca, which is an art gallery and an environmental arts charity in Brighton. I'm here at New England House to talk about a fabulous project that was shown in the gallery uh, as part of last year's Brighton Digital Festival. The project was called Mephitic Air and it was an installation uh, of sound and visuals uh, in the gallery. It was made by Wesley Goatley and Tobias Revel, who's another artist, um, that was commissioned by Lawrence Hill, who uh, produced the project and is also the director of Brighton Digital Festival. It explored air quality and how we relate to data around pollution. Um, so first of all, I'd just like to um, introduce you to and perhaps you could tell us a little bit, bit about what you do and Lawrence, maybe tell us why you commissioned um, the project. Um, I'm Wesley Goatley. Uh, I'm a sound artist and researcher in critical data aesthetics. And um, my work is mostly in installation such as uh, as Mephitic Air was. Um, and I also give talks and teach around the subjects of design, art, critical theory and sound. And I'm Lawrence Hill, I'm, as Persephone said, Director of Brighton Digital Festival, um, which is a month-long exploration of digital culture that happens every autumn in Brighton. Alongside that, I work as a kind of freelance, independent um, programmer and producer, and uh, that's how I came to produce Mephitic Air. And how that happened is that I saw an earlier version of Mephitic Air that Wes and Tobias were showing at Somerset House, which was in January 2017. Yeah, January 2017, as part of a weekend of exhibitions and talks around air pollution. It was called Space, Space to mm. Breathe. Space to Breathe, yeah. Mm. Which is really interesting. Anyway, I've known Wes for a while and I've we commissioned a project that he did before for the festival. You commissioned two projects for me, actually. Did I? Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> actually, I think the first one wasn't you, but it was the Brian Digital Festival. Okay, it wasn't yeah. me. I was going to say, I don't remember that one. Yeah. <laughs> it really made an impact. <laughs> so, yeah, I saw the project. I kind of uh, I saw this earlier version of Mephitica, uh, immediately responded to it, immediately thought about Onka Gallery and just... Uh, wanting it to be in the festival and then just set out to to make that happen really fund fundraised for it and uh found sponsorship uh and and that was it really so um Wes perhaps you could just explain what people uh so if someone came off the street into the gallery what they would see so what it was was a uh, an installation that was looking at um, air pollution specifically cited at Brighton at Onca Gallery. Um, we were looking at three different forms of air pollution. Uh, PM10, particular matter, 10 microns or less, carbon monoxide, CO, and um, NO2. So these um, elements of pollution which are generated almost uh, at, at scale by uh, internal combustion engines, buses, cars, that sort of thing, um, and what we were doing was basically pulling this data that we were measuring from a sensor box that we built out of bits and pieces and a lot of other strange little bits of technology, mounted it on the roof of the gallery, piped that information into the gallery space, and then created um, a three-channel 
visual installation. So it's with these three um, thin polythene sheets with projections uh, being beamed onto them. So the polythene sheets moved with both the air in the room and the presence of bodies around it. Um, as well as a, a eight-point surround sound um, installation that was sonifying that data. So the data is being visualized in these projections that are moving, and the sound uh, in the space are, are mapped again to these values of pollution. Um, so each of these three screens each had a different visualization. We had, say, for PM10, for example, it was... Um, uh, uh, metallic particles because a large uh, component of what PM10 is or, or or an interesting component of PM10 is actually little bits of platinum that comes out from car exhaust mm. as part of the cat because a, a catalytic converter in a car is lined with platinum so it kind of spits out as part of exhaust um, and then the uh, the NO2 uh, channel this, the, the visualization was of um, what a nitrogen dioxide looks like at room temperature temperature um i like this kind of orange liquid which is why you get this kind of orange sheen at the top of um of views across cities sometimes um and then the last channel which was carbon monoxide was uh was a kind of representation of car exhaust because carbon monoxide is actually um invisible to us um and so it was kind of like this kind of cloudy element and then tied into that was uh, an eight channel surround sound um audio component which moved the sound around the space in uh, to reflect the movements of air outside using a wind vane, um, but also each one had its own sound, much in the same way as the uh, the visuals did. And those sounds went up and down in time with the with the pollutant measurement. So, you know, if, if you've got a big spike in pollution outside, the visualizations would all increase in size. And if you've got a reduction uh, of the the amount of pollution being measured outside, they would all shrink down. So there was a there was a a mixing of sound and image. Yeah, so as to make something that that was genuinely quite immersive in the way that sound and image uh, combined together can can do, but also that that you can always get a sense of the rhythms regardless of where you were in that room, because regardless of where where you were looking at and where you were physically spaced, because it was all kind of like quite spread out intentionally in this way. The sound and its mapping to the pollution was always a component of it. So that regardless of wherever you where you are and what particular perspective you'd constructed for your space yourself on that work, you always got sense of the overall rhythms of it working around you. And also, there was this extraordinary piece of music that um, you had chosen, uh, which was very surprising because it was very it was actually very melodious. So. I'd, the, the cutty wren. The yes. cutty wren. Yeah, yeah. Can you yeah. tell Which us was, about that? Yeah, it was lovely. I mean, uh, the you know, and this goes back to these discourses around data always kind of looking a certain way. You know, it's normally like presented as being like green and you know green zeros and ones in a black background, mm. for example, <laughs> like the matrix, matrix style yeah. thing. You know, that's a really common trope. But also in in data sonification, so turning data into sound, a lot of it's just to make it sound like bleeps and bloops because it's like, oh, that's what data sounds like, right? It sounds like technology and mm. stuff. <laughs> but it, but you know, that's which is really it's a really weak uncritical way to engage with it because again it makes it just seem really you know like something that's not for us because it's just about technology and things it's science so so particularly what you know the cutty the use of the cutty wren which was one of the three was mapped to one of these three pollutants so whenever that particular pollutant got increased in size which was you're right carbon monoxide that that song kind of increased in volume in the space and that song was um it's written in the 14th century is where it's attributed to and it's either about um 
sacrificing a bird to welcome in the new year or killing the king and feeding his body to the poor. There's two separate readings. One of them is clearly much more contemporary. But it, but what's interesting about it is that it's conceivably then the, the first English protest song or first documented English protest song, um, which we thought was was a very uh, compelling aesthetic to bring into that space when, you know, for us, this, you know, we didn't pick air pollution because it's just like, was we didn't pick out of a hat. You know, it's not an abstract notion. It's like Tobias and I both live in London and already, uh, as as had happened this time last year, already this year, like England's, um, London's exceeded um, it, its quota for amount of, of pollution it can, it can be basically pumping out into the world in January. Mm-hmm. And it's also happened, yeah, in 2017. So, um, so it's a it's a massive problem for a massive amount of people, not just in London, but uh, you know, in wide, much wider spaces. And so, we wanted to be having something that grounded the value of um, of artistic practice and expression. Uh, like as a political gesture by and like bringing that cut right in um did allow us to talk about exactly how old that process is you know that even in this country um there's just there's this massive background of of um trying to push back through these kind of like quite discreet fashions that involve aesthetic expression that, is, that are in, in, in our history and the other interesting thing about it is about 50 years later is the first recorded um moment of a king of england telling people to stop burning coal in London because there's too much air pollution. <laughs> so that same century after is like, yeah, yeah. It's, it was about 40 years later after the Cutty Ren is attributed to have been written. Um, there was the first record of, I think it was Edward, um, the first basically bit saying, stop burning coal. This is too bad, you know, and it's like, think about that in, in wow, the context of where years. we are. Yeah, really, Smog. yeah, really quite serious. So it's an interesting point of time. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and about your practice in general? Yeah, so um, so the research and the practice are all really tied in together. Um, I'm really lucky enough that uh, University of Sussex also pay me to um, to continue doing that sort of research uh, for, uh, as a PhD researcher. Um, but it's all been tied up in my practice for some time now. Actually, since this first thing that I was just telling you about the, the, at the Brian Digital Festival, which was 2014, which was a piece called Wireless Fidelity, um, which I got a little bit of money for and some nice space from the Brighton University to, to put on. I think that was, that's kind of where a lot of this started for me. Um, and uh, what the research and the practice uh, is is kind of diving into is the relationship between um, kind of data, the politics of data and artistic practice. And not just, oh, here's some data, let's make some art out of it, but really kind of like, what does it mean to be doing this when every, when like there's such a, a kind of a power in art and a power um, that you're expressing out in the world and an ideology you're expressing out in the world when you make things with data and you make art. Um, and when all that stuff is very, has these kind of huge ramifications uh, I think for the for these ongoing discourses around data at a time when de- the discourses around data are often put us at quite a disempowered position. Could you perhaps talk a little bit about disempo- what you what you mean by disempowering um, visualizations of data, and then maybe that could lead into you talking about what you did with the the kind of data that you used. Sure. Mephitic Air. Yeah. So I have a, like a really big bugbear really um with this kind of strange obsession that we see a lot in um data visualization uh you know in things like for example like the 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 really really good one is when you watch um election nights 
kind of anywhere in the world at the moment. Uh, election night, they, you know, they've got to run it normally for like about six hour long program. They've got to keep all this content going the whole way through. And it's like as the night or day draws on, the kind of the the, the complexity and bizarreness of their visualizations, which they use to map some data they've gotten from somewhere, get more and more insane. You know, and it's just like the stranger things keep coming up. If you look, for, if you just do, do data visualization you, uh, into Google Image Search, you'll come up with just a lot of things that look the same. It basically just looks like a mass of things, often with no key to tell you what it is. But what it basically says is, look at how complex and sophisticated this is. And I think a lot of art that tries to um, that, that that involves data visualization ends up falling into a bit of that kind of hole of basically being like, well, we've we're kind of latching somewhat onto this authority of data, this kind of scientific authority that's, that it's assumed to have, um, this kind of mechanical objectivity that it kind of um, that it seems to, to possess. Um, but also it's so complex that we just shouldn't bother, right? You know, it's like it's too complex for us. It's for scientists to do to, to use, you know. And the, and when, when data has such a material everyday consequence for people trying to get through borders, trying to get credit cards or whatever, you know, uh, approved loans, that sort of thing. Um, but also in the way that, say, our bodies are implicated in things like everyday forms of facial recognition, for example. These things are are important and um, affect a great number of people. And uh, these should be discourses that we're kind of working towards. Yeah, thinking about empowerment more than disempowerment. Think about how the, the images or the the experiences we create through data enlarge people's perspective on the world and bring the data closer to them and make it more um, uh, accessible and understandable and, and hopefully brings in these kind of layered discourses that are always in data but are kind of dissolved when you just make it just go look how big and, and impressive it is you know let's not think about it just go always oh, in that big and impressive you know so that's kind of where the project came in I think that's one of the things that I really responded to in Mafetiger and, and other pieces of Wes's work is that kind of um, critique of data as this, this science and the idea that data is neutral because, you know, it's becoming increasingly clear that it's far from neutral because it's being collected for a reason, for somebody to use in order to prove something that they want to prove uh, often. Um, there's a, a German philosopher whose name I'm going to mangle, but it's something like Byung Chul Han. Do you know his work? He's um, He writes a lot about kind of philosophy around technology, but he talks a lot about data as being um, anti-human. We have this sense that somehow it means something to us, but actually it means it's it's anti-human. It's the opposite of human, and it shouldn't be used to kind of drive the sort of stuff that it is driving around, you know, making decisions about people getting parole or, you know, whether somebody is likely to be an offender before they've even done anything. You know, so that that's something that I'm interested in. Because any criticism of data necessarily becomes social criticism. I think that's the interesting thing about it. Like you were just saying, the relationships between data and the rest of the world are so widespread and um, and uh, uh, affective that um, that whenever that, that if you're interested in. And this is what I think I, I've said before on this topic that an interesting thing about working with data from a politically uh, oriented practice, as I have and as Tobias has um, on this subject, is you can find data on anything. You know, if you're interested in in trying to pull out, critique both data and the thing that the data refers to, this kind of real world. 
um, then you can either generate data or find data on, it, on anything, which makes it a really powerful tool to be building kind of quite nuanced and layered critiques of things where you can get in a kind of a critique both of how this thing, this this event or space or whatever it is you're interested in is measured by data, but also then the event or space itself. It's a massive social justice issue as well, isn't it, with where, where people are living in close proximity to areas of high pollution. And it's a massive killer, air mm. pollution around the world. I had no idea until researching Mephitic um, Air that it kills millions of, and shortens the lives of many millions of people so this this context meant that we were able to have some events and talks in the gallery and also you did some work off-site with the maker club and they were quite inspired to do quite an activist project weren't they yeah i mean i i, I really like uh working with organizations like maker club which we should explain is an is an after-school club for young inventors i guess is how they describe it and uh I think it's always really interesting to get young people's perspectives on these kind of issues because they tend to be less um they tend to be less kind of hidebound by by what's right and proper and what you can and can't do and it's a bit more kind of um a bit more imaginative in a lot of ways and um so they yeah they with one of their groups they think they worked over kind of 8 weeks or so just looking at air pollution and air sense air pollution sensors and coming up with ideas for um kind of a, a getting rid of pollution and b also finding ways of telling people what the pollution is like at a particular moment um which they presented at the gallery which i just loved i thought they were great but you always went to talk to them didn't you so maybe yeah. you can talk about that uh, they, they were brilliant it was amazing i mean you know like a real privilege to speak to because they're, they're between about nine and 12 i think is, is the age range amazing privilege to get to speak to them like a, an interesting challenge to like talk about quite um, you know complicated um things that that you can't you, you mostly come into contact with as you get older i think um around notions of like of thinking about air pollution and thinking about a bit sort of like meta layer about your life kind of thing in, in amongst all these systems but i mean one of the one of the amazing moments that i saw in that was i was talking about an older work that i'd done about looking at internet service providers and who provides you the internet and what that means like how do they you know um, make a little walled garden of your internet when the internet's kind of described as being very open and free etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh, one of the, one of the 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 students there who was 10 put his hand up and um and went yeah yeah because you don't know whether or not you're um the, the person who sells you the internet's looking at your emails do you i'm like exactly that's really <laughs> true but like my dad bless him doesn't really get that you know my you know my grandparents still look at you know a tablet as being like a devil mirror you know that's like it's a very confusing object but like kids of that age just totally getting this really nuanced fact about the world and our interaction with these technologies and they were like getting their hands dirty by playing around with those technologies afterwards and had all sorts of really interesting ideas so it was clear that there was like a real kind of like a critical disposition going on with them as well where they were just really thinking hard about what it means to be using these things but then also all these really interesting very creative ideas that like you say are like seem to be kind of unbound by norms mm -hmm. and when like I've been talking about today there's like so much of my work is thinking about what power norms have that to reinforce bad politics sometimes. Um, it's great to see young people like really pushing at those and kind of, you know, being a bit more free of them than I think some other people might, might be. I think the other thing is 
I mean, this is something that we try and do in the festival as well, is remember that young people are going to be in the future a lot longer than most of us are. You know, and it's 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 for them to kind of be shaping, I think, the discourse, at, you know, now <clears throat> when they're young and to have the language and the kind of opportunities to confidence. do that and the confidence to do that is 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 really critical, I think. Can you remember which was the, the winning idea? Was it a sensor? Yeah, it was a sensor and they were talking about that. It, so it was about displaying air pollution and they <clears throat> really thought about... Um, making it quite universal so they were using emo emojis ah. <clears throat> as uh so it's like you know angry face emoji if the if the air pollution is bad in a particular place at a particular time and then you know kind of going down to a smiley face or up to a smiley face whichever way you want to think about it i mean it was just it was quite a simple idea but actually it was really universal and it, you know something that you know that everybody understands without having necessarily to, to, to use language. Which is a great, that's what great art does, right? I think like it can communicate very hard, or this might be me showing my hand about what I think about great art, but like can communicate very, very hard problems in a way that, that somehow everyone gets, you know, I think that's kind of genius. Yeah. And that sounds, you know, it's, it's like I, I unfortunately didn't get to see the, the, the project land because I was out of the country at the time, but like that sounds exactly the sort of thing I'd be like, yes, I'm so stoked they did this, you know. That should be what they what they would come out with from, from having spoken with them. Yeah, there was another one which was, um, it was called The Blowing Pig. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like an enormous machine that would just like blow pollution out of the city. It was great. <laughs> and they did illustrated it with like this pig's head flying through the air was, was the pig aimed at a city they didn't like you know where's away Worthing. yeah, yeah. it's like <laughs> france suddenly just suffers all worthy it's gonna be worthing actually isn't it yeah, yeah. that's my, the great enemy <laughs> we also had um adults talking didn't we um in and around the exhibition um you and tobias gave a really interesting talk on on the project and we also had a panel discussion with you and we had um, a representative of the Brighton Bus Company who were project um, sponsors which was wonderful we had um, Martin Harris who's the managing director there uh, he's an ardent advocate for shared transport and car-free Brighton so he was kind of talking a little bit about his his vision for reducing um, for increasing air quality and we also had uh, Alice Bell who's a climate justice campaigner really based at 1010 she's a science communicator she was talking she, she got us all very fired up basically about um access to clean air basically and as a as a as a basic human right and we had um a representative from this laboratory which is up the road from brighton at falmer as the brighton university Air, air quality, quality research lab. Yeah, so we had Dr. Kirsty Smallbone talking about um, air quality monitoring and all around the world and how it mo how pollutants move, um, what they do to people's bodies, how you can ha how these tiny tiny ones that you were talking about, even smaller than than the PM Thames, mm, two point five. Um, yeah, yeah. how how tiny these things can actually get and how poorly understood um, the impacts that they have can be. So yeah, it was a very it was it was wonderful to have have the work um, inspiring these conversations, and it went on for a long it was a long night. People got really fired up in there, and there were people talking about um, the London airport, London City Airport campaign, and 
joining the dots really between um, social justice, you know, the people, the noise pollution and people having, you know, having to be moved or having to be like having their quality of life massively kind of impaired by big meta developments and actually the very physical reality of, of living close to an airport, how that's massively affects some people more than others. I think that's duplicated around the world, isn't it? Because, you know, property prices are cheaper in places where people don't want to live. And those places are, you know, on major roads. And so the people that end up having to live in those places because they're the only places they can afford are people, you know, without <clears throat> without much economic resource. I wonder what impact the emoji um, air quality sensor would have if it was sort of rolled out and you saw it on every street corner. Yeah. People could see it on every street corner. I wonder what that would do, because that's what that's the important thing. One of the important things about mephitic air was you don't see air pollution. And so here we were, we were able to experience this intangible, invisible, silent killer. Mm. And so I guess the emoji sensor would be a very direct and sort of playful way to to bring that into the real world. I think that like there, there's an interesting thing there because it's like because what happens when the emoji sensor breaks and it just shows a smiley face all the time and, right. you, and you get right. used to the person walking past it saying okay it's all right today I can like go mm. out for a bit of a longer walk and this is I think this was like a, a, a another thing that I talked about a lot around this work and was kind of was tied into the aesthetics in various points and was described in the space as well that that the value of of having data as a view on the world but not the relied upon view on the world because obviously these because it's because it's not the world it's a measurement of it that's like you said earlier on Lawrence it's a very fallible one and, and always serves power in some sense um, that we should be thinking about how to involve people's voices and more discussion and what's often called a sort of a situated perspective on a single problem where rather than just going, well, data slash science is the kind of the God's eye view that sees everything. Instead, favouring on the ground discussion, you know, that like this is one component of it, you know, these sensors measuring these things. But I think like everybody who was involved in those discussions last night, uh, sorry, last night and during the talk that, that we had, um, Kirsty Smallbone and, and Alice Bell, etc. They're all involved in these different ways. And that's what made that discussion interesting because they weren't all data scientists around air pollution. They weren't all pollution scientists, but they're all working from a different perspective on this one point, which was what made the discussion so rich and why I feel like, every, you know, me particularly, like I learned so much from those discussions because seeing all these situated perspectives comes in. That's what makes kind of good... It, well, I mean, it's always made good governance. It doesn't very rarely comes into governance, but like we can look to a lot of history of this to show that like this is where we need to be going with it. Um, but then the danger is when when data is being s seen as being more authoritative than us, and therefore we don't need to ask anybody. You just look at some data instead. Uh, but then right. what happens when the sensor breaks? Yeah. You know, it's that sort of thing. Retain your critical faculties, yes. citizens. Yeah. Yes, citizens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Thank you very Thanks, much. Thanks, Wesley Thank and you. Lawrence. It's been great talking to you today.